Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and the effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Dr. Amy Brady will join us to discuss ice. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, what would our world be like without ice? Joining us today to discuss this issue is Dr. Amy Brady. Dr. Brady is the executive director of Orion Magazine and co-editor of The World As We Knew It, Dispatches from a Changing Climate, published widely on how the climate crisis continues to influence art and culture, won writing and research awards from the National Science Foundation, the Bread Loaf Environmental Writers Conference, and the Library of Congress. She has penned the new book, Ice, from Mixed Drinks to Skating Rinks, A Cool History of a Hot Commodity. And Dr. Brady, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grox Science Show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Well, it is certainly our pleasure. Certainly a great book you put together here about a subject I think that we're all both familiar with and not familiar with. Here's how you became interested in the history of ice. Well, like so many people, I'm sure, I never gave much thought to ice for the longest time. I never really noticed it until I ran out of it because it's just everywhere. But a few years ago, during a brutal heat wave, I went to a local convenience store to try to cool down. And I put a cup under an ice machine to fill with ice and get a nice cold drink. And as I watched the cubes fall into my glass, it just occurred to me, I didn't think twice about going to that convenience store to get ice. I just knew it would be there. And I knew if I went to the local grocery store down the street, I could get a bag of ice there too. Ice is everywhere. But when I travel abroad, that's not the case. You can't just walk into a store and get ice. In fact, if you ask for it, they, someone might look at you funny. So why is America so obsessed with ice? I couldn't find a satisfying answer to that question. So I decided to research it myself and figure out what the answer was. How did it come to be this way? It certainly does take a little bit of effort to actually make ice. <laughs> well, 200 years ago, it took a lot of effort. Americans became obsessed with ice around 200 years ago in 1806 when a wealthy Bostonian named Frederick Tudor landed on the idea to start carving large blocks of ice out of his Massachusetts lake and sell it for a profit to people living in warm climates uh, around the world. And, you know, before this time, people living in these warm climates, like the American southern states and territories, they didn't really know what to do with ice or even knew what ice was because it didn't form naturally there. And so Frederick Tudor had to show them how to use the stuff to make the most delicious things and how to use it in medicine. Eventually, people caught on and became incredibly obsessed with the stuff. And nowhere else in the world was there an ice trade nearly as large as the one in the United States. One's probably reminded of the opening scene from Frozen, where people are digging out the ice and bringing them down to the village, naturally formed ice, and they shipped it around, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The, the movie Frozen does a great job of showing what ice harvesting would have looked like. Now, you know, obviously, um, ice men didn't sing in unison, or maybe they did. I don't think they did. But real-life har uh, ice harvesters 
use those uh, the tools that are depicted in that movie. Large saws, large canes, and ice picks to help get the ice broken out of the lakes and rivers. It was extremely hard work. And once they broke the ice free, they then had to haul it out of the lake or river into the back of a wagon and then bring it to local ice houses, which would then distribute the ice to people's homes. So it took an extraordinary amount of strength and effort, and it was quite dangerous. A lot of people would be surprised that the ice can make it that far, but it stays as ice if it's packed right and shipped together. It stays cold and frozen. Yeah. Before we had electric refrigerators, people figured out how to keep ice cold throughout most of the year. And they did this through the use of ice houses. You know, ice houses weren't actually houses at all. They were more like big wells that people dug several feet down into the ground where the earth is always around 55 degrees Fahrenheit. Well, when large blocks of ice are stacked so that air can't blow between them, when they're packed with straw and sawdust to ward off some of the warm air, and when they're elevated out of their warm meltwater, ice actually lasts a really long time. So you know, even in Frederick Tudor's day, he could have been getting ice out of his own family ice house in the peak of August. Efficient way of keeping the ice, and now we spend a lot of energy making ice. Yeah, yeah, it really does. You know, now we have electric refrigerators, most of which have automated ice makers if they're, they've been made in the last few years. And the refrigerator is one of, if not the biggest drawer of energy of any appliance an American has in their household. Taken together, those refrigerators are starting to take a toll on the planet. And all this just for a cold drink. <laughs> and all this just for a cold drink. <laughs> Well, I, I mean, your book title puts it everything from mixed drinks to skating rinks. How did the ice fever take over through history? Well, we can really thank Frederick Tudor for that, you know, the man who launched the ice trade. In order to get people obsessed with ice, he had to teach them how to use ice to make ice cream and delicious cocktails and iced coffee. And once he did that, more and more people started to bring their own innovations to ice and started to use it in more unusual ways, uh, ways that would have been unusual then, but are quite commonplace now. The other innovation that Tudor had is that he imbued ice with a sense of aspiration. This, this was his marketing genius. And you know, he basically told people that you know, if you want ice, then what you're wanting is a luxury. And that way of thinking about ice stuck with it throughout you know, its 200-year-old history. I mean, even by the time we get to the 1950s, to have uh, a freezer in your house was on par with having a TV set or a car. It means that one had arrived at the American middle class status symbol in a way, and that installed the idea that this is something you need to have. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It became indispensable. That became really clear, actually, as early as the American Civil War. By that time, the American ice trade was going full speed ahead, delivering tons and tons of ice from the north to the south every year. But the Civil War created several embargoes, and there weren't so that ice was no longer allowed to be delivered to those southern states. So what people in the South did is that they ended up building ice plants. These were large infrastructures that would take up entire city blocks that could produce tons of ice per day. And when that happened, 
suddenly the price of ice fell dramatically and more people had access to it than ever before and using it for all all kinds of things for the the food and drink that we discussed but also uh, in hospitals this was one of my favorite parts of researching this book was learning about how hospitals adopted ice until the civil war American doctors were actually really suspicious of cold. It was cold that made people sick, not heat, or so the thinking went of the day. But with the arrival of ice, they were suddenly able to just try it out and see how it worked on their patients. And they realized it could reduce swelling and fevers. It could eliminate pain, even in patients who were suffering from chronic illnesses and injuries. It completely transformed how we practice medicine in the country today, giving rise to things like cryotherapy, which um, is the use of ice crystals to cure cancer, and therapeutic hypothermia, which is a process of lowering the body temperature to preserve human organs after something as critical as a heart attack. Ice fundamentally changed how we think of medicine. For keeping all those of the COVID vaccine nice and cool and preserved as they were being shipped around the world. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, as I was writing this book, you know, COVID cast its first shadows in the United States. And the need for ice was not lost on me because so many doctors and experts found that life-saving vaccines like the COVID vaccine and other medicines are only stable when kept at extremely cold temperatures. And if we go back just a hundred years in history, wouldn't have been experimenting with cold because cold was still something to be suspicious of and avoided at all costs. The ice has formed the basis for a whole sporting industry. Yeah. So before ice on demand allowed us to have skating rinks everywhere, uh, America was already enraptured by ice skating. It was extremely popular. And one reason for that was because it was the only place in American social life where men and women could socialize and hang out together without being under the watchful eye of a guardian. So ice skating was hugely popular. And then when ice on demand made it possible to create indoor skating rinks in places where ice didn't form naturally, the sports completely took off. And the People throughout the southern states and out west fell in love with ice skating. And then that, of course, in turn led to the rise of hockey arenas and the giant sporting arenas that we have today, like Madison Square Garden. Your book is very wide-ranging, covers a lot of different topics, and ice has touched our, our modern world. What was the most surprising thing to you when you are researching the topic? I would have to say it was the initial reception of Ice on Demand. So this is a wild story. Uh, in the 1840s, a doctor named Dr. John Gorey was living in Apalachicola, Florida, fighting yellow fever. I mean, this was a disease that ravaged the American South every year. And doctors back then didn't know that yellow fever was transmitted by mosquitoes. All they knew was that it got really bad in the summer months, and then the disease waned in the fall and winter when things got cool. So Dr. Gorey thought, well, maybe if I could get my patient's body to mimic the cycles of the seasons, I could rid them of yellow fever. But in the 1840s, the only way he knew how to cool a patient's body was with ice. I mean, air conditioning didn't exist. But the thing is, is that ice didn't form in Apalachicola naturally. And ice from the north was still very expensive because the ice trade was very new. So he knew the only way he was going to get ice is if he learned to make it himself. 
So after years of trial and error, he finally built a machine that can produce great amounts of ice. And he thought that when he made the announcement to the world that the world would respond with cries of joy and gratitude, but instead they responded with cries of blasphemy, saying, how dare a mere man make ice? Only God can create ice. And Don Gorey died in debt and with his reputation in shatters. It wasn't for decades later, uh, with the rise of the American Civil War, that mechanically made ice was finally accepted and caught on. How dare he try and play God there? <laughs> How dare him? <laughs> well, well, luck for us, uh, we, we do have the ice. Portraying this as sort of a uniquely American obsession in some ways mirrors a little bit of our obsession with air conditioning, which you might not find the world over. I, I think it all comes back to Frederick Tudor's original marketing plan. You know, he launched an ice trade. First off, it was bigger than any other ice trade that ever happened in any other part of the world. And it happened earlier than those places. But it was because he imbued ice with this sense of aspiration that Americans um, in, <laughs> in whatever that that kind of national character that we have to always be striving and aspirational. We just kept clamoring for it. And every time something new would disrupt the industry, like the rise of the mechanical ice machine or, you know, the rise of refrigerators, electric refrigeration, every single time the new marketing campaign was always, this is an aspirational product. And if you want to be a true middle-class American, you need to own it. And it just generated an appetite for the stuff that was never mirrored or matched anywhere else in the world. People picking up the book, what would you really like them to take home about the history of ice and the future of ice? Well, what I hope that they, what people take away from this book is that history is not a single overarching narrative, you know, with a capital H. <laughs> history is actually much stranger and weirder than we ever would have guessed. And when you look at history through a single object, like a cube of ice, you start to see things you would never have seen before. You notice new colorful personalities and the origins of various industries, things that are all connected to something as unassuming as an ice cube. And so I guess the takeaway is even the most common objects around us have a fascinating history if we just look for it. We were talking with Dr. Amy Brady, her new book, Ice, From Mixed Drinks to Skating Rinks. A Cool History of a Hot Commodity. Dr. Brady, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grox Science Show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grox Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at grox.net. For Grox Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.